Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and this edition of the programme is sponsored by Blackwell Online, which you'll find at blackwell.co.uk. It's an extended version of my interview from last autumn with Michael Slater about his biography of Charles Dickens, and appropriately enough, this week marks Charles Dickens' 198th birthday. Michael Slater is Emeritus Professor of Victorian Literature at Birkbeck, and has spent a lifetime studying the life and works of Charles Dickens. So much so that no less a biographer than Claire Tomlin has said that no living person is a greater authority on the life and work of Charles Dickens than Michael Slater. His previous books include Dickens and Women, a four-volume edition of Dickens' journalism, and the general editorship of The Everyman Dickens. But the book which he published last year is in a sense the crowning achievement, a richly detailed life of the writer which focuses on the whole of his output his journalism, sketches, letters, as well as the novels. John Bowen, reviewing the book in the Times Literary Supplement, wrote, It's a triumph of compression, and immediately takes its place as the most authoritative, fair-minded, and navigable of modern biographies. I began by asking Michael to cast his mind back to his own boyhood, and tell me about his first encounter with Dickens. Yes, I can remember it very vividly. Um, I used to steal books from my sister, my older sister, when I was 10, 11 years old, about that time. And uh, she had a, a little set of Dickens, Collins classics they were, I remember. I was forbidden to touch these books, so of course I did do that set. And I, I, I took um, uh, Oliver Twist, I think it was, and read Oliver Twist, and I was absolutely frightened to death. And, you know, kids like to be frightened. I didn't find it funny at all. I mean, I found it, you know, terrifying, and uh, what with Fagin and the murder of Nancy and so on. So I thought, gosh, this is really something. So I then proceeded to steal Nicholas Nickleby, which was the second one I read, and of course got terrified by, by Squeers and, you know, the horrible villains in, in, in Nickleby. And that was the start of it. Uh, I, I went on to read most of Dickens' novels. And fortunately, perhaps, uh, I wasn't taught Dickens at school. He just wasn't on the syllabus. So he was my own private reading, as it were. I guess I must have listened to radio adaptations, but I don't remember that at all. It was mainly the reading Certainly, I didn't encounter the original illustrations, the Fizz and Cruikshank illustrations, uh, until much later on. I then went to Oxford um, and studied English, but the course stopped at 1830. After that, it was only books, we were told, so uh, things you could read in your bath, and so that wasn't really literature. So again, I wasn't formally taught Dickens. He remained... Um, a private passion, as it were. Well, I mean, I wasn't the only person who was reading Dickens, obviously, but I never had any sort of instruction about Dickens as an academic subject until, well, I remember in my last year as an undergraduate, I'd been saving up one Dickens novel. It was Our Mutual Friend, which I hadn't read, you know, and I, I just really couldn't bear to read the last one. But then I did, I remember, as I was an undergraduate. Then I was lucky and got a state studentship to do graduate work for a DPhil. Of course I wanted to do it on Dickens and I had quite a struggle to do that. I mean, they wanted me to do, oh I know, edit some medieval text, The Owl and the Nightingale or something like that, and uh, because doing a thesis on Dickens seemed to the Oxford dons of the day a contradiction in terms. But I persisted and um, 
They sent me to Lord David Cecil, who had written an essay on Dickens in 1935 and, you know, remembered a few things about him. But then he went off on sabbaticals and they didn't know what to do with me. And they sent me to London to uh, Professor Kathleen Tillotson at Bedford College, as it was then. And she was a, a great, well, perhaps one of the greatest Dickens scholars who's ever lived and a very inspiring teacher. She really became my, although I, I still was officially an Oxford student and had an official supervisor there, she really supervised my thesis and I did my doctorate thesis on Dickens. And then I was very lucky getting a job fairly early on at Birkbeck College, uh, which is a college for mature students, so it was very, very good to teach. They're very good people to teach. Also, classes began at six in the evening, which suited me. And um, so I taught there my whole career. I never wanted to move from there. And of course, taught lots and lots of Dickens. And do you remember back when you decided to do your thesis, what was it about Dickens that persuaded you that it was more than just a sort of enthusiastic reading passion? It was something you wanted to devote serious study to? Yes, there again, it's interesting. A, A Danish professor came to Oxford while I was still an undergraduate, and they somehow allowed him, Professor Bodelson, his name was, from Copenhagen, to give a lecture on Dickens' symbolism. And it had never occurred to me that uh, to attach the word symbolism to Dickens. And and, uh, here was this man talking about the fog in Bleak House and the railway trains in Dombey and Son and the dust heaps in Our Mutual Friend as meaning something more than just being, you know, props in the story, so to speak. And I found that, that very exciting, you know, giving me a new insight into Dickens, into, if you like, the poetic aspect of Dickens that it wasn't just marvellous, funny or frightening characters or a rattling good yarn or, you know, comic witty phrases, but that it was a great literary achievement and that there was much more to these amazing books than just story or even just story and character. And that, I think, was what decided me that I should study Dickens in some depth, you see. And uh, and when I did meet Mrs. Tillotson and she asked what I thought of doing, I sort of got very enthusiastic about uh, symbolism and the fog in Bleak House, as though nobody had ever said anything about it. But of course, it was because I was a bit knighted Oxford that I hadn't heard. I mean, this was really quite old hat and anyway, hugely ambitious for a a graduate student to take on that whole aspect of Dickens. So she suggested that I might go and have a look at the manuscripts in the Victorian Albert Museum. I didn't even know Dickens' manuscripts existed still. And that I might study how he actually wrote and composed these works and what the manuscripts could tell us. She had, uh, with John Butchie, just published a wonderful book, which is still a great classic of Dickens' criticism, called Dickens at Work, which really is the inspiration and the model for my biography, which I wanted to call A Writing Life. I wanted it to have that subtitle, but Yale decided to go without a subtitle. But that uh, there's a direct continuity between that 1957 book, Dickens at Work, which was the first book really to study the the manuscripts, the corrected proofs, all the evidences of of Dickens actually at his desk writing and creating. Uh, And there's a pretty direct line from that book 
to the kind of biography I've written. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what persuaded you to take that final step from being a Dickens scholar, a Dickens specialist, to actually committing so much of your time and energy to writing a biography. What persuaded you that the time, the time was right for you to do that? Well, I have to say Yale persuaded me. (laughs) Um, I had no idea of doing such a thing. I I was and am a huge admirer of Peter Ackroyd's great biography, which was published in 1990, and which is a tremendous epic about Dickens, particularly because Peter Ackroyd is such a, a great writer about the city and about London, very much about Dickens and London, the city, but, uh, but there it is, a thousand pages of just a just tremendous epic sweep. And before that, in the 1950s, an American professor, Edgar Johnson, had published his Charles Dickens, his Tragedy and Triumph in two volumes, which was, and still is to some extent, I suppose, the standard scholarly life, though of course much has been discovered since then. And most formidable of all, there was the great biography of Dickens by his friend John Forster, written in the four years after Dickens's death, which of course has the edge over any other biography because he was Dickens's close friend for all these, these years. So there was Forster, there was Johnson, there was Ackroyd, and um, I really, although I've always been a biographical scholar, and indeed in 1983 published a, a book called Dickens and Women, which was quite successful, uh, that was very much a sort of biographical approach. Uh, one section of that book was called Experience into Art, and it gives you the idea of the approach. I mean, not crudely saying, oh, this is a picture of so-and-so in his novels, but the way in which this particular woman moved his imagination and led to, with many other things, led to the creation of particular characters. So I had done that long, long ago, but I had absolutely no idea of writing a biography of Dickens because Croyd seemed to me just terrific. But it was in 2000 when Robert Baldock and, uh, and, and Malcolm Garrett from Yale uh, approached me about this, 10 years after Peter Ackroyd's book. So, you know, with a huge major author like Dickens, 10 years, it's quite a long time without a new biography, a new major biography. There'd been one or two very short things. So first of all, I said, gosh, no, you know, it's just too, too much. I mean, too overwhelming. I'm <laughs> approaching retirement. I want, to, <laughs> I want to live a little, you know. <laughs> and uh, it seemed to me also there was no, I knew that there were no huge new discoveries to be made. I mean, there was Peter Ackroyd's book and there was also Claire Tomlin's wonderful book on um, uh, Ellen Turner and the Invisible Woman, which also had come out in 1990, and which really uh, was about as far as you could go in unpicking that fascinating relation and hugely important relationship of the last 12 years of Dickens's life. So I couldn't really see that there was any, as it were, new material which would justify a major new biography. And... Um, uh, first of all, I, I said no. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. But they were very persuasive and very flattering. Uh, in the end, I think the thing that made me do it was shame, because I thought, and some of my friends said to me, "You know, you've been all your life." <laughs> 
teaching Dickens, writing about Dickens, enjoying Dickens, studying Dickens. And here comes you know, a major publisher offering you a very good contract to write a biography of Dickens. And you saying, oh, I can't. I mean, I have nothing to say. And I thought, well, really, it's to make sense of my life, I mean, I have to say yes to this. And so that's what I did. And then arose the question of, you know, what kind of biography, if there wasn't, you know, and there, there wasn't a huge treasure trove of, of, of new material. Well, in a sense, there was, because, of course, I can't remember exactly when, about 2004, I think, the great pilgrim edition of Dickens's letters, the great scholarly edition, 12 volumes of Dickens's letters, was completed. And, of course, there are many, many new letters edited and presented in, in there. I had also myself spent the 1990s doing a four-volume big scholarly edition of all Dickens's journalism. I've always loved Dickens's marvellous essays and journalism generally, and I'd always felt that this gets a bit pushed out in accounts because they focus on the, the major novels. So I thought that although there wasn't a sudden, you know, discovery of Dickens' secret diary or something. Uh, it was a good moment to write, I mean, sufficiently far away from Peter Ackroyd's book, which is now 20 years back, but a completely different approach. But I did have, I may say, <laughs> unparalleled knowledge of Dickens' journalism. I had the whole range of his edited letters available to me. So I thought something could be done and I thought what I would like to do would be to focus it very much on Dickens the writer. I mean, that sounds obvious in a way, but, but I mean, all of his writings and how they interleaved and interconnected. I mean, the, the mere fact that most people don't know and are kind of astonished to find out that while he was writing Bleak House or the, these great novels, he was also in the same month writing satirical pieces, reminiscent essays, dozens of wonderful letters, making great speeches. I mean, just phenomenal. That's why it's such a fat book. And I wanted to, to cover all his writing and, and as it were, to, to read horizontally uh, through Dickens, instead of having you know, a chapter on Bleak House, chapter on Our Mutual Friend, and sort of on we go, but to, to show how all these things interwove and that you find the same themes in, you know, one month he may be writing Pickwick Papers and he's writing some jolly thing about people getting drunk. He's also writing a pamphlet uh, against what would have been extremely sort of blue-nosed legislation and so on. So you, you find all kinds of, of tie-ups, mm. you know, uh, between the journalism and what he's saying in his letters and speeches and what he's actually writing in the novels. And there are some you know, very, very celebrated instances of that. So that was going to be the, the focus, really, of it. Dickens, the writer. Then I had the problem of how do you begin? Because obviously he wasn't born scribbling in his cradle. I didn't want to begin until he was writing, as it were. But you can't really have a biography of Dickens in which he starts at the age of 18 or 19. And I really didn't know what to do. I, I, I began writing when he was like 18 and 19 and when he was writing and wrote, you know, several chapters. But there was no beginning to the book. And I just could not think. I mean, I could not make my hand write 
Charles Dickens was born on the 7th of February, 1812, you know, and go through all that, which you have to have, which has to be there in the biography. And I suppose at the same time, you're aware that those unwritten about years contain things of significance for what is going to come later, aren't you? Oh, of course. Yes, yes. I mean, that's right. And he did write about, uh, very memorably write about some of those years uh, later on, notably in the so-called autobiographical fragment. But in the end, I, I found a way to begin the book with the first two pieces of his writing that survive from his childhood, a schoolboy letter and a, a, um, an even younger little formal invitation he wrote or at his parents' dictation to some other kids to come to a party. That gave me a start because these two items, the earliest surviving bits of Dickens' writing that we have, were five years apart. And I could, as it were, fill in the gaps from departing from those two bits of writing I could create those two episodes of his childhood and also he himself talks about writing various juvenile tragedies and sketches and so forth all all now lost but we know something about them so I could talk about all that so that gave me I just called it early years those two first chapters were written quite a bit later on Mm. And then I, uh, and I, I think this is a touch of genius myself, at the end, the, the, of course he dies at the end, as, as, as you have to in a biography, but my last chapter is about his last two publications, which are, of course are posthumous publications, and he knew that they would be published, one was his will, of course, he knew that was going to be made public, and Forster actually ends it at the uh, adds it at the end of his biography, and that is the amazing thing where he mentions Ellen Turnan. The first legacy he leaves is boldly to Ellen Turnan, and so you know what what's he playing at here? He's concealed this relationship for twelve years, and suddenly she's the first person mentioned in his will. Then there's the long piece about Georgina, his sister-in-law, very cold and awful words about his wife, whom he can't even bear to mention. So that's one publication, sort of Dickens justifying himself, really. And there was quite a lot of criticism of it. A lot of people recognised what he was doing. You know, somebody said, well, they often, people dispute about which of Dickens's works was the best, but I know which was the worst, and that was his will. <laughs> uh, so it was discussed as a publication. And then after that, when Forster published the first volume of his biography, he published in it the autobiographical fragment, which Dickens had written just before he wrote David Copperfield in, in mid-career, about his 10th, 11th, years, 12th years, when he was sent to work, when he was taken from school, sent to work in the blacking factory, and all that sort of, uh, as we would call it now, traumatic experience, which of course I discuss both in the early part of the book, in the middle part of the book, when he's actually writing it. But again, it's the impact on it, because although he said to Forster, I don't care whether you publish this or not, really, I'm just writing it down so as you know what happened to me. But of course he knew that Forster would publish it. And so like his will, it was something he knew would come out after his death and which would hugely, in this case, hugely increase public sympathy for him and love and compassion for him. He was already regarded as a great hero, but nobody had any idea uh, that he'd had such a horrific uh, episode, or as he made it out to be, in his childhood. 
when, as he said, for any care that was taken off me, I might have become a little robber or a little vagabond. I mean, a kind of Oliver Twist, as it were. And so I think that the autobiographical fragment and, and Forster's biography obviously set the image of Dickens, the public image of Dickens, for 60 years or so, it wasn't until the 1930s and the beginning of, of, of real revelations about Ellen Turner that public perception of Dickens changed, as it, of course, was doing of all the Victorians as a result of Lynn Strachey and the, the revolution in biography in the 1920s and 30s. It's clear from, from throughout your book that Dickens was a highly sensitive writer to how he was perceived and he was very aware of how he was presenting himself and you know there are many manifestations of that in print and towards the end of his life in in public appearances and his trips to America and so on he's he is fashioning his life for consumption and that's something which the biographer has got to contend with I suppose yes yes but you know with Dickens a great deal what you saw is what you got I mean he was a phenomenal man who was extraordinarily kind and compassionate it wasn't just an act as it were he was extraordinarily efficient (laughs) extraordinarily energetic all these things were part of his public image but they were also true of him I think it's very hard to think, you know, that that question of what are they like at home? Mm. I mean, Dickens was very much the same Mm. at home as as he appeared in public. Perhaps a a, a bit harsher sometimes. I mean, if if, uh, disagreed with somebody or felt some friend had had not not behaved well towards him, he, he could be pretty harsh, certainly. But I don't think the the image, the public image that Dickens presented, uh, it, the split only really began to happen, I think, in the in the eighteen forties, and still more in the eighteen fifties, when the appearance of being the absolute model of a happy family man, a happy father, you know, the great sort of uh, celebrator of hearth and home. Uh, which is how the public perceived him, didn't accord with his increasing dissatisfaction in his marriage. What was striking about that was the the tenacity with which he kept that up, the fact that even in his will, he's only got very cold words for his wife. And at one point before he goes on his second trip to America, she sends him quite a, quite a warm message of, of good wishes. And his, his answer is very, very cold. Yeah. That was something that I, I I puzzled over because it did, as you say, seem to be at odds with so much of the life. The fact that that was that was he kept that up for so long. I mean, how, why do you think that was? Hmm. Um, well, what he did, I mean, what he said he did, he wrote her out of his life. I mean, that's why I call that chapter "Writing Off a Marriage." It was most extraordinary thing as though she just really hadn't existed and when on two occasions when she did write to him after the separation as you say he returns very very brief cold notes to his great friend and Catherine Dickens's great friend Angela Burdett Coots when she's trying to reconcile them he says it's just no good you know there was a a page of my life that had writing on it that is now completely blank and it's not in my power to put writing on it again. Very, very chilling words. I mean, he felt that Catherine had 
I think, first of all, he felt that, that she'd failed him, that she somehow had not been able to, to supply the support, the, the comfort, the inspiration, the sexual comfort or whatever, I mean, that, that he wanted from his wife. And then at a certain point in the, in the separation, I think when he, he met and obviously fell in love with Ellen Turnan, who was um, 20, I think, 19 or 20, about the same age as his younger daughter anyway, that was the kind of catalyst and then it was just intolerable the marriage but uh, first of all he was sort of feeling sorry for poor Catherine you know she's never been up to it she she doesn't understand me he really did say <laughs> she doesn't understand me she kind of gropes around you know trying to but she's it's all very sad and poor old thing you know she'd be much happier away and then at some point during the uh, negotiations for the separation Catherine does or says something or is reported as saying something which enrages him so much that uh, she becomes an enemy and he doesn't want anything more to do with her and he's, he rejects her utterly and completely. Yeah, there's one moment where he gets up at 2am after an argument and walks for 30 miles from That's London right. to, to Kent, which, which I suppose is indicative of both of his energy and his, the strength yes. of his feeling. Yes. Well, it could well have been her saying, what's all this about Ellen Turner then? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm sure Dickens perhaps convinced himself that, uh, as he said in that amazing statement that he published in 1858, that this young lady whose name was being banded about was as innocent and good and pure as his own dear daughters, and that he really thought of himself as you know, having a very pure relationship with Ellen and was outraged when perhaps Catherine very understandably suggested that he might have more than a fatherly interest in, in the girl. But we don't know what caused that, uh, or even if it was a quarrel with Catherine that caused him to, to get up and walk those 30 miles. But certainly after that, he didn't stay under the marital roof very much. Uh, I knew about Dickens' readings, public readings, of course, before I read your book, but I, d I hadn't realised to what extent he was involved in the theatre and that he considered being an actor early in his career. And really that theatrical thread runs all the way through his life. From going to see Grimaldi as a, as a boy, there's a sort of theatrical um, strand which is very pronounced. Oh yes, I mean even earlier than that when he was um, very young and his father would, uh, as it were, exhibit him and his little sister standing on a table in the pub, the mitre in Chatham and singing comic duets and so forth. Uh, and he, he was um, a performer, you know, from a very, very early age. And yes, it, it goes uh, all the way through. I think that and Dickens had this extraordinary uh, experience that um, I can't imagine another artist quite has it. Of, he writes all these works that people love. And then he performs them, you know, physically there in front of the audience so they can adore him. Mm. Uh, an actor, of course, is applauded and adored, but you, the actor hasn't usually written the script as well. <laughs> and so Dickens became, I mean, as Carlyle said to him, you carry a whole theatre under your hat. And he did really. I mean, he was the... He was the uh, the manager, the director, the producer, the author, mm. <laughs> and the sole actor. 
so it was a consummation of uh, it was more than just being a brilliant brilliant actor because he clearly was a superb actor and when he acted for charity and shakespeare and ben johnson and so forth i mean the theater critics praised him to the skies but then acting his own texts which were already you know people would adored i mean people would bring little copies of the of the christmas carol or whatever to his readings and kind of follow him while he was acting it and when he introduced new bits it would be a tremendous thrill you know i suppose that the heart of it all is is acting because there's a wonderful book by Robert Garris called The Dickens Theatre, published back in the 1970s, I think, but which was one of the first to really explore that aspect of Dickens's prose, as it were, the performative act. I mean, he's acting in his letters, too. This is why their letters are in some ways very frustrating for a biographer, because they're endlessly quotable, because Dickens is always striking attitudes either of despair or uh, telling some wonderful comic anecdote but um, and they're written for that recipient they are performances his uh, his letters they're an aspect of performative art and so uh, of course is his writing he says in a speech uh, that everybody who writes writes in effect for the stage well, I mean, that's not something that Henry James would have agreed with, but but it's very telling, I think, that, that Dickens makes that connection. And he does have, you know, obviously very great scenes in his, his novels that could translate almost, could be just staged, and the great characters and, and so on. So I suppose it's no surprise then that he's been so adaptable for film and radio and television no not at all i mean it's fairly obvious it started it started of course in his own time and much to his indignation because um uh, there was no copyright law in, in those days so you had half a dozen or more versions of the christmas carol being played in the london theaters and up and down the country you know within weeks almost of the book coming out so he was in his own time constantly adapted and there was not very much he could do about it I mean, he got very angry about it less so with his later novels because our mutual friends and so on they weren't so easy to to adapt to the stage but they were adapted in early cinema he was one of the the first uh, of the the great novelists to be plundered i mean around 1912 or so there was a chap called thomas bentley who was making film after film silent films of course of even barnaby rudge with great and taylor two cities with great crowd scenes and of course there have been endless films of dickens the two great david lean ones i think of Oliver Twist and Great Expectations stand out as the greatest, in my book anyway, the greatest Dickens films ever made. And lots of adaptations. I mean, just think of the success of Oliver, the musical. Dickens had a very clear sense of the profession of writing, of what it meant to be man of letters. It was a profession which was, which had dignity about it. Do you think he really helped to shape the whole conception of what a literary career meant for the subsequent century. Well, there's no doubt that the the, um, the dignity of literature, to use the phrase that he enforced to use, was tremendously important to him. And his great opposite here was Thackeray, who talked about it as a trade. And Dickens considered himself and writers 
serious writers to be great artists and um, he always contrasted his century with the 18th century where even such great men as Samuel Johnson and so on were dependent on patrons, aristocratic patrons and so forth, whereas for Dickens the only patron should be the public. He, um, it's, it's a difficult one in a sense. I mean, he certainly had this great sense of, uh, that's why he, he, he refused knighthoods and so forth and so on, because, and just wanted the plain words Charles Dickens on his tomb, because he felt that he had done an enormous amount to raise the status of literature and of literary men. He devoted an enormous amount of energy to the abortive guild of literature and art, which was supposed to be some kind of more than a trades union or mutual benefit society, but a guild, I mean, of, of as though writers were like medieval artists or something. He was a hard act to follow. I mean, he, his, his success was meteoric. And he, someone said he, he, he's risen like a rocket and he'll fall like a stick, but he didn't. I mean, he rose like a rocket and he, st- he stayed up there. Yes, yes he did. But, but after his death and in, in the late 19th century and well into the 20th century, he wasn't seen as a great artist. He was seen as a, a great popular entertainer. I mean, I suppose this culminates in F.R. Leavis and his notorious in the 19th, though Leavis changed his mind later on, but in, the, in his book, The Great Tradition, where he talks about, in, it's in 1940s, isn't it, uh, the genius of Dickens being essentially that of the great entertainer. I suppose this takes us back to the actor thing we were talking about before. But um, I think it's fairly common that a, a great and hugely popular artist, a writer especially, after his death, I mean, look what's happened, say, to William Golding. I mean, they, who won the Nobel Prize, etc., etc. It'd be interesting to see if the new biography by John Kerry is, is going to put his stock up again. But, I mean, he went right down, didn't he? And uh, in, I'm, I'm talking about, um, not in, in, in popularity and in sales. I mean, Dickens continued to sell in huge numbers and to be read, and as we just said, to be constantly adapted for stage and screen. But he wasn't, and this is you know, why, after all, I wasn't allowed to study him at Oxford, even as late as the 1950s. Somehow he wasn't quite literature with a capital L. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't think he did. Uh, I think the idea of, of the, the literary, the great literary genius, the great literary man and so on, had much more to do with, with later writers like Henry James and so on. And, uh, and later Bloomsbury and Virginia Woolf and so on. And uh, that kind of, and Dickens was regarded then as, as um, anything but the, the great art, the great literary artist. You've, you've talked about how you've, you wanted to look at how Dickens' writing was interwoven, not just the novels, but the journalism and, and all of it. And I wondered finally, if you felt that looking at his career in that way then sent you back to the novels with new perceptions. Is, is that the ultimate aim, to, to go back to the novels, enriched by a, a greater understanding of his entire writing life? Yes, in the end, of course, that, that must be what one wants to do, because his greatest achievements are the novels. I mean, it would be very strange if I ended up thinking he was a greater journalist than he was a novelist. I suppose what fascinates me is the meeting in the novels of of the journalist 
the observer, the campaigner for social improvement, the reporter on social conditions, or the the critic of the laws delays in Bleak House, or, or whatever, or the necessity for sanitary reform, how that meets the, the artist, the visionary, as it were, who, this is taking us back to the kind of symbolism and, and poetic aspect of Dickens, and it's the the tremendously fruitful and unique mingling of these two the great journalist and the great artist that fascinates me and that i suppose i attempt to to demonstrate um in this book michael slater his biography called simply charles dickens is out now in hardback from Yale University Press. You'll find it at Blackwell's online at blackwell.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of Podularity. If you want to subscribe to the programme, simply go to iTunes and type Podularity in the search box. Subscribing is free, quick and easy, and means you'll never miss another edition of the programme. Until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye.